you know, Grant, really uh, grateful to spend some time uh, to chat with you uh, about my career in social impact investing. Yeah, no, I love it. So I, I think I would love to start there because I, I'm fortunate enough to when I get to talk to people, you know, they're usually at a really profound point in their life where they're working on something that will last sort of far beyond there here, right? And I think it's it's really cool to talk to people when they're in that mindset of creating something that will build a legacy. Uh, but I also thought it's important. I always think it's important to to show the pathway to, to even get to that point. So maybe just take us through your career journey and, and how you sort of came about looking at investing in all these phases is from an impact point of view, like just walk us through that journey of, of how Turner Impact Capital even got started. Sure. And it's, and it's been a long journey and it's a work in process and continues to be a work in process. Uh, but truth be told, uh, you know, what we'll talk about today, business being a force for good in my career has really never been more important to society and, and more rewarding as an investor. I mean, think about where we stand today and what's happened over the last 12 months. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've had a global pandemic. Uh, we've had an economic crisis. We've had a civil rights movement all at the same time. Mm-hmm. I mean, imagine that in the history of the world, each alone would have been a formidable crisis. And together, we're, you know, we're watching this in real time. And I think that while it's too soon to uh, determine the magnitude of, uh, you know, caused by these crises, it's clear, I think, to me, and I'm sure to you and, and most of the listeners, is that these, these, these crises have hit our most vulnerable communities of color and immigrants harder than, than others. And it's also exacerbated the, the government's inability to create lasting solutions to, to our most pressing challenges, because candidly, there's just going to be fewer dollars. So my, my evolution into what would be called an impact investor really dates back to, to my childhood, where uh, my my father was in the footwear industry uh, and manufactured athletic shoes. And uh, my sophomore summer of high school, my father sent me down to uh, work in uh, in Puerto Rico, uh, where he had a factory. And I worked on the assembly line in one of his shoe factories. And I worked, uh, I think, a solid eight-hour day on a glue machine, which was truly subhuman uh, in an environment that had uh, no windows, uh, no air conditioning. Um, and uh, I was working between two older men. Uh, I, if I remember correctly, it, correctly, it was uh, Juan and Ricardo. And at the end of the summer, I went back to uh, my home in Baltimore. My dad asked me what I had learned. I mean, that was an obvious question. An obvious sure. answer I had was I learned how to make shoes, uh, to which he responded, uh, you learned absolutely nothing, my son. Uh, you're going back next summer. And I was a little bewildered. Uh, so the next summer I returned, and to my surprise, there were both Juan and Ricardo working the same machines on either side of me. And I remember asking them, you know, why are you guys still here? And I remember Juan looked at me uh, really confused and, and, and looked at me and said, Bobby, what choice do you think we have? Uh, and I remember returning back home that summer and my dad asking me the same question, what I had learned. And my, my response was really quite different. Uh, this time I answered, I learned just how lucky I am and how lucky I was to have choices in my life. So as we'll talk about today, I found Turner Impact Capital about seven years ago after a 30-year career as a capitalist and a 20-year career as a philanthropist where mm-hmm. candidly, I struggled at both yeah. um, as a capitalist. Uh, first of all, I went to the uh, Wharton School in Pennsylvania, where I graduated in 1984 with a black belt in how to create wealth. And I always assumed that with that black belt would come a corresponding uh, sense of happiness. Uh, and it just didn't for me. Um, in the 80s, I worked for a firm called Drexel Burnham Lambert, uh, indirectly for a gentleman that, by the name of Mike Milken, uh, and eventually went on to be a partner in one of the world's largest alternative investment firms, uh, where over time, I realized that making money as the primary source and candidly, the sole metric of my accomplishments was really just not enough for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess maybe it was 25 years ago when I was uh, in my uh, mid to early 30s, uh, I recognized I had a lack of balance 
balance. And I went on what I called my, my 50 over 50 journey, uh, a journey where I interviewed 50 people from all walks of life, bankers, money managers, right. teachers, policemen, politicians, rich people, poor people, doctors, nurses, even lawyers, but I, I, fewer lawyers because they tended to charge me by the hour for this, this conversation. Uh, and I asked them a very simple question. Uh, were you happy? And if so, why? And if not, why not? And I concluded that for me, this exercise helped me understand that happiness to me, success to me, which is also known as happiness, uh, was defined in a four-step program. Uh, number one was materialism. And I know that sounds almost hypocritical as a social impact investor, but let's start by agreeing that it's hard to be happy in survival mode, right? When you're living paycheck to paycheck, it's hard to think about building a foundation for happiness. So let's all agree that materialism is a foundation. It mm -hmm. will not guarantee happiness, but it does guarantee a more comfortable form of misery. Number two uh, was love. And most people, when I said, well, love's only two out of four, people say, well, Bobby, where's the romance in your life? And I said, well, my, my romance always has taken a second seat to my ambition. And if you're an ambitious person, you realize that you will spend 80% of your waking hours away from those that you love. So therefore, you mm -hmm. cannot rely upon love to drive happiness in your life. Number three, I learned was for me to be happy, I, I had to have the opportunity to achieve. Not achievement itself, but the opportunity to get up every morning like a gladiator and train for battle. Go out on that playing field and leave it all on the field. And if I were to lose, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be jealous or have uh, uh, you know, animosity towards the victor. I'd respect them. But I know that I did everything that I could do to take on a challenge that I cared about. And fourth, and what was really most important to me was I needed power to be happy. And not the power, uh, you know, the, the, the Austin Powers, Dr. Evil, a sense of power to manipulate or control, but rather the power to have a positive impact on other people's lives. Mm -hmm. Because truth be told, the happiest people I met with were the teachers and the mm. policemen and the healthcare workers, people that got to get up every day in their lives and do something with a purpose that improved the lives and opportunities for other people. And so in a desire to gain some balance and have a positive impact on other people, I started increasing my focus on philanthropy, where I also struggled. Uh, I struggled mm. as a philanthropist, uh, where my wife and I supported a myriad of not-for-profits focused primarily on social justice and income equality. And we quickly came to realize that the vast majority of organizations and not-for-profits that we were funding were really only just putting Band-Aids on issues. They were reactive, not proactive. They weren't really accountable, uh, either financially and or socially, and they weren't generating measurable impact. And we concluded after a decade of, of, of philanthropy uh, that in many instances, we were just funding legacies of dependency. So 25 years ago, I came to the following conclusion, that if you want to treat a problem in society, then the government and philanthropy are just fine, but neither are particularly mm. good at creating durable solutions of stick. And if you wanted to cure, really cure, you had to harness market forces to create durable, sustainable, and yeah, profitable solutions. Mm -hmm. So that was sort of the evolution and the groundwork for how we started uh, Turner Impact Capital, because in my role as, um, as a partner and alternative manager, I spent a lot of time, not a lot of time, maybe 30% of my time doing really innovative business models where I was using business as a force for good. Uh, and we can talk about that at greater length. So much to unpack there. And I, I think somebody who doesn't know you, right? If you're just in, in some, some corner of the world or corner of, of the city or the country and, and you're sitting down and, and you're talking with somebody and somebody asks you, what is Turner Impact Capital? What is the, its mission and what does it do? How do you respond to something like that? 
I, I think that Turner Impact Capital is a blessing. It's a blessing to me as I get to get up every day and, and do something where my accomplishments are aligned with my values as a human being uh, it is really what it is. A, a more theoretical or more uh, academic response would be, you know, Turner Impact Capital is one of the world's largest alternative investment managers focused on using market forces to create durable, sustainable, and scalable, and yeah, profitable solutions to tackle some of our most uh, pressing and pervasive challenges in society. Society. Let's let's be serious, Grant. You know, I think we can all agree that even before COVID, our country, uh, the world has fallen short on its ideas. Mm -hmm. In America alone, there was 43 million Americans living on food stamps. Only one in three students in public schools were proficient at grade level. That's only gotten worse since COVID. 78% of full-time workers live paycheck to paycheck. That's mm -hmm. in survival mode. Mm -hmm. One in four, nearly 12 million renter families live severely rent burdened, spending rent at the expense of food security and health security. These things are, you know, when you add COVID to the, the, the equation uh, and an economic recession, you further deepen the disparity of opportunities and hope in a country. Um, and the fact is today that there are hundreds of millions, if not billions of people around the world whose educational, uh, economic, and healthcare outcomes are predetermined by whether born Mm -hmm. Families living in survival mode, living paycheck to paycheck. For all intent and purposes, families that have been foreclosed out of the American dream and from prosperity, and it's just not sustainable. So what Turner Impact Capital is, it's a, an investment vehicle that invests in hope and recognizes that investing in hope doesn't need to be exclusive or segregating from being a profitable endeavor. So let's talk about housing, education, and healthcare. Because these are the, I mean, three obviously massive societal problems that, that we face. And what I really enjoy about them, and I think I want to start with education just because I think that's sort of the, the prerequisite for everything we're talking about. Um, I think it's, it's obviously has such power in, in what it can do and the potential in someone's life. And, and why I say education first and why I want to talk, because I, I really believe in charter schools and I know it's still early on in sort of the idea of what that is. But can we talk a little bit about education and what Turner Impact Capital is doing from a charter school perspective to, t to tackle public school and how can capitalism improve public schools? And I'd like to set the stage by recognizing that, you know, part of the narrative or, or the misnarrative in this country is that the biggest challenge we're facing as a society is the disparity of wealth. Um, and and I, I actually refute and disagree with that profoundly because I actually don't think the disparity of wealth is a problem. Poor people don't hate rich people. Poor people want to become rich people. Mm -hmm. Poor people begin to hate rich people when rich people uh, create a society that systemically uh, suppresses poor people's opportunity to achieve. They shut for they foreclose out upward mobility by you know eliminating the the social safety net that provides people with a clearer path to prosperity. And the social safety net includes education, healthcare, and housing. And the interdependency between the three is critical in why at Turner Impact Capital, we have all three of these verticals uh, focusing on all the communities to enrich the communities holistically. In the area of education, uh, you know, we're focusing on addressing the inequalities of public education by building public charter schools in some of the most economically Amazing. challenged underserved communities. I mean, it is truly criminal to me that we as a country rank number one in what we spend in the world per pupil for education. Yet globally, Grant, we rank 13th in reading, 37th mm. in math, 18th in science. And while charters are not necessarily the panacea to the solution of public education, they're part of the solution. Because in my opinion, the public school districts have lost their privilege mm. of operating as a monopoly 
Mm-hmm. as they have failed to innovate and educate our next generation. It saddens me to tell you that only one in three public school students in this country are proficient at grade level, and it's worse in urban communities. So while there is a universe of people, possibly teachers, unions, and others that view charter schools as competition mm-hmm. and undermining the unions, charter schools are incredibly pro-union. They represent the children's union, mm. and they represent a parent's perspective that children and adults need alternative choices in education. So our fund is all about empowering the very best in class uh, charter school operators that have proven track records, both academically and financially, to help them scale in the most economically challenged underserved communities. And to date, our funds have actually built 115 public charter schools for high-performing operators, serving over 57,000 students, of which 77% are minority. And the vast majority of that set qualify for free and or reduced lunches, meaning they come from low-income families. These are students who otherwise would have been relegated to underperforming school districts, and our schools that we have built consistently outperform their public district competition. And and by the way, while we are changing the opportunity set for tens of thousands of kids, our first fund generated just shy of an 8.5% return net of all fees for investors. That is truly doing good and doing well, social impact business at its best. And when we talk about charter schools, for for maybe those who aren't as close into it, what, what is the power in it? Is it Is it the idea that curriculum can be a bit more innovative and and sort of coursework? Is that sort of at its simplest level at the heart of what makes a charter school much more impactful or is there other elements within it? So I will start by by highlighting the fact that the vast majority of charter schools do not outperform public school districts. And our job and our business model is not to scale mediocrity. It's only to scale the very best in class. But charter schools were were created back in the 1990s as really a petri dish for innovation. Mm -hmm. Um, Charter schools, again, are public schools. They just get to operate independently from the district, therefore Mm -hmm. independent from the collective bargaining contract of the teachers union. And the idea was behind charter schools is if our public schools are failing, let's take this lab, we'll call it a charter school, and let's infuse this lab with interesting ideas, and we'll see if they have positive impact on those students. Ideas like maybe a longer school day, ideas like maybe blended Mm -hmm. learning, incorporating technology, ideas like maybe having uh, an incentive program where you can incentivize teachers for doing well, and you can penalize teachers for not doing well. So not necessarily based on payment, based on tenure, but rather payment based on value or outcome. And what happened is originally back in in Minnesota is some of these ideas quickly uh, moved to the top and they tried to infuse these ideas in the districts themselves where they were met with great resistance from the teachers unions who said, well, a longer school day, a longer school year. What do you mean that we can pay a, a, a more junior teacher more than a more senior teacher based on performance? No, it's based on tenure. So mm. very quickly, you saw the divergence of goals, uh, you know, prioritizing uh, education for the benefit of children or the benefit of adults. And that's why charter schools began to proliferate independently from public schools. But they are both held accountable to the same governing authority. Uh, they're both uh, um, the revenue streams from come from the taxing authority uh, of the of the state. The primary place where they 
differ is with regards to facility funding, as where the public school districts do not have to pay for their facilities. They are paid for by uh, real estate taxes in the various communities, mm-hmm. pay for the bonds. Uh, charter school facilities do not have access to that capital. So therefore, that's the real impediment to charter school growth. It's not kids. It's most likely today there's a million kids on a wait list for a great charter school. Yep. $20,000 a school seat, that's a $20 billion infrastructure. But the reality is, is charter schools don't have access to that, that those taxes uh, on real estate. They historically have had to cobble together philanthropy to build, yep. and that basically handicaps their ability to scale quickly. Our business model addresses that. It goes a step further by not only do we address the facilities need, but we are also are a bridge to ownership. And our business model is recognizing that no one gets rich in a landlord-tenant relationship other than the landlord. Our goal as a social impact investor is empower these great not-for-profit charter schools to create enterprise value so they can be sustainable. So what we do is we build this amazing turnkey solution for a school. We enter into a long-term lease, say 30 years, which protects mm-hmm. our investors. But once that school is four or five years of both academic and financial performance, we actually allow them to buy the facility from us mm-hmm. using cheaper cost of capital. The cheaper cost of capital comes in the form of municipal tax-exempt debt because our borrowers, our schools are all non-for-profits. So rather than paying me my 8.5% mm-hmm. during the time where they're incubating and they're socializing, stabilizing, once they are stabilized, they can borrow money at 35 or 4%, which dramatically cuts their, their facilities costs which means they'll have more money to spend on curriculum development, transportation, or other enriching services for their students. You said the word infrastructure. Is there any place in this new sort of (laughs) couple of trillion dollar infrastructure bill possibly that might pass? Is there any room in there for building schools for for charter distribution? We hope so. You know, right now, President Biden's infrastructure plan is a dream, Mm -hmm. right? It needs to go through partisan politics. Mm -hmm. So we'll see what at the end of the day it looks like. It's not dissimilar to the Opportunity Zone legislation, which was originally authored by and and championed by uh, my dear friend Cory Booker. And Mm -hmm. that was an incredibly innovative, uh, noble legislation that by the time it got through partisan politics, it really ended up being a glorified tax break uh, Mm -hmm. for highly affluent families that had long-term capital gains to roll. So time will tell what it ends up looking like. But I think that President Biden is very, very focused on investing in the social safety net. He's investing in infrastructure, which is essential. It will also create jobs. The beautiful thing I I also recognize it or or how I look at it from an outsider, you know, looking at at, at the firm is that it's sort of building an ecosystem where a child can go to, you know, an innovative charter school and then perhaps walk home to a, a much better living facility right? And then also in the neighborhood have access to decent healthcare, right? It it seems like Turner Impact is trying to build this ecosystem for citizens where that foundational sort of quote unquote safety net is available for them in in all three of those sectors. Am Am I kind of reading that correctly? Verbatim. It's exactly right. Again, we recognize that hope comes in the form of a three legged stool. Mm-hmm. Uh, and all three legs, education, housing, uh, and edu- uh, and healthcare, all need to be addressed to in a, form, in a sense of a wraparound service or mm-hmm. safety net mm-hmm. to empower uh, prosperity. And, you know, it's interesting because when you look at these issues, what most people don't recognize about impact investing is it requires unique skills to mm-hmm. be an impact investor. It doesn't require you just necessarily being a black belt financier because there is a universe of, of issues and risks associated that most bankers are not even aware even exist. 
exist. Uh, one of the things we're most proud of uh, since our founding in 2014 is, you know, well above in the fact that we've raised a billion and a half dollars, uh, well above and be, uh, beyond the fact that we've uh, touched the lives of over 125,000 citizens, driven strong risk stress returns. What I think we're most proud of is the fact that we've grown to over 250 employees, of which we are 90% wow. diverse, meaning non-white men, and we are 50% women, meaning, I guess, non-men. And the diversity is something we're really proud of because it's not done to check a box to greenwash, to say that we are an ESG or SRI responsible or a member of any one of these right. uh, uh, trade groups. The reason that we are diverse is because it's a competitive advantage, yeah. simply put. When I partnered with Magic Johnson uh, of the Laker fame nearly 20 years ago uh, to create a series of funds that invested in historically neglected uh, minority communities, uh, he told me that two words would clearly define investing in underserved communities or impact investing. And those were arrogance and distrust. Hmm. Arrogance from capital, because uh, capital had the wealth, had the education, had the privilege, therefore had the knowledge how to solve the problems uh, of underserved communities, which obviously was arrogance, mm -hmm. and distrust from those who suffered the injustices of the social determinants, uh, who assumed that capital was there just to make money. Over the past two and a half decades, I've learned that the only way to effectively bridge the gap between that arrogance and distrust was by building an organization or organizations that were from the community and intimately knowledgeable of the issues. And with this in mind, our diversity doesn't stop at race or gender. It expands to issue expertise, where in addition to recovering bankers, we have former public school teachers. Mm. How does one have the arrogance to talk about having a, a, a school uh, endeavor, uh, investing in public education without having former public school superintendents or classroom teachers mm. on your investment committee? Mm -hmm. We have primary care physicians. How can you expect to understand the risk of, of communities that uh, have an incredible shortage of community-facing preventative care doctors without having a preventative care physician on your staff. We have former DEA and law enforcement agents that help us underwrite civil unrest, gang issues, drug mm -hmm. issues. We have former frontline workers addressing homelessness. So each possessing a unique knowledge that's critical for us to quantify, identify, and mitigate both financial and social risks of an investment. And that really is what differentiates us from any other investment firm that's trying to address holistically the pervasive uh, and pressing challenges we face as a country. So let's talk about housing. We talk about the student walking home, but also, uh, you know, a, a teacher, right? Like a teacher going, you know, walking home that doesn't, you know, make a ton of money, housing for them to be adequate, right? And maybe at this housing facility, the opportunity for if she's passionate, he or she is passionate to maybe teach extra at the at the housing facility or something like that. Like, what are the what are the innovating housing approaches that, that you're looking into and trying so to fulfill? It's a great question. And I think, as, as you stated, um, I think that we can agree that everybody suffers. Mm -hmm. Communities, household well-being, the environment, and worker productivity all suffer when housing is not proximate to employment, education, mm -hmm. healthcare resources, and most importantly, is not affordable, right? Cool. Cool. So that's problematic yeah. for everybody. Let's start with the fundamentals. In America today, uh, and this is before COVID, there were 43 million renter households. That's absolutely increased over the last year. Sure. And that number, that population will grow by an additional four or five million over the next 10 years of, again, renter households, primarily consisting of immigrants and communities of color. One out of two renter households today in America are rent burdened, spending over a third of their income on rent. One out of four grant nearly 12 million 
renter families are severely rent burdened, in many instances, spending upwards of 60% of their income on rent at the expense of food security, health security, education security, retirement security, at the expense of hope. And candidly, it's just not sustainable. Part of the challenge, and when we think about the new infrastructure plan that President Biden's putting forth, is the obvious solution to this would be, is let's just get private developers to build new affordable workforce housing. And by the way, I'm not talking about low-income housing for families that earn below 50% of the average median income. This is poverty. Mm -hmm. uh, that's addressed and captured within the social safety net of government programmings uh, through uh, Section 8 housing and LIHTC low-income housing tax credit markets. That's not the universal population I'm focused on. I'm focused on the population of essential service providers, mm -hmm. the backbone of America, teachers, policemen, municipal workers, retail uh, clerks, uh, warehouse employees who candidly make too much money to qualify for right. subsidized housing, right. but don't make enough money for home ownership mm -hmm. um, and or luxury rental. So again, the obvious solution is let's just build new housing for this population. But unfortunately, as many people will, will confirm, is it's not that simple. Sure. Because given the cost of land and labor and hard costs and financing costs, a for-profit developer cannot build new construction, charge an affordable rent of, say, 30% of the average median income and make a market rate return. In fact, in most marketplaces across this country, uh, those parameters yield less than a 2% return. That is not scalable. That's not a market rate return. That is not a high enough return to incentivize or, or you know, basically incentivize private capital to come into these marketplaces. So again, the, the problem is huge. Uh, the demand is growing. There's no new supply. And for us at Turner Impact Capital, uh, while we hadn't figured out a way to, to build new, what was disheartening to us was the fact that the existing supply of naturally occurring workforce housing, properties that were built in the 70s or 80s that were affordable to working families, the existing supply is actually shrinking because every time one of those properties was being put on the market for sale, they were being bought by an yeah. opportunistic investor who mm -hmm. was either demolishing them mm -hmm. to regentrify a community and build new construction, or they were purchasing them and improving them with new community areas, uh, new you know sub-zero refrigerators in yep. the kitchens, self-flushing toilets, ta-ta uh, toilets in the bathrooms and I highly recommend if you haven't tried one, uh, they're, they're wonderful for quickly for, for midnight runs. Mm -hmm. um, but, um, you know, what would ha then happen is the investors would then to get a return on those uh, capital improvements would increase rents on the very tenant who had seen no wage inflation. Sure, sure. And again, as I said, while I haven't been able to figure out how to build new, I have been able to figure out how to buy the existing stock of workforce yeah. housing when it comes in the market, pay a competitive price, preserve its affordability, and at the same time, generate a market rate return without increasing rents. So how is that possible? Yes. So first of all, let's all agree. If we want to generate market rate returns, but don't want to do it by increasing rents, then our only option is to do it by what? Reducing expenses. And if I've learned one thing over being an impact investor in the urban markets over the last 25 years, is that the biggest expense of owning and operating workforce housing is not real estate taxes, it's not capital improvements, it's turnover. It's mm. vacancy. Let's be serious. Nobody works two jobs a day, which candidly most of our tenants do, comes home to a shoddy apartment in a shoddy neighborhood, spends in many times upwards of 40 or 50% of their income on rent and screams at the top of their lungs, God, I love living here. Mm -hmm. The fact is, is there's no pride in rentership, which leads to a transiency, which also leads to the fact that the average lease duration of a tenant in workforce housing is 24 months which means that every two years, you mm -hmm. are 100% vacant. 
So our business model is based on a very simple idea that if we can create a pride and rentership by investing or by enriching a property with relevant community services and by maintaining rents at an affordable level, then our tenants will stay longer, treat the properties better, which in turn would drive down maintenance costs, insurance costs, and economic loss, which should drive up profits without increasing rents. So in practice, every time we um, buy a property, we set aside a percentage of our units which we subsidize for relevant service providers who in Mm. return for reduced rents provide essential services that build a sense of community, services Mm. that are essential for upward mobility and hope. So the first thing we do by way of example is we focus on education, which we just talked about. We're with the help of our Turner Agassiz Charter School Fund team. We go out into the local community and we recruit teachers from neighborhood schools to live at our property. And in many instances, it's teachers that are teaching at schools that we've built. And in return for the reduced rent, these teachers, these essential service providers oversee education programming at our properties tailored to the community makeup. Things like after-school tutoring for for children, but maybe things like English as a second language for adults. The second area we focus on is safety and security, where, as I mentioned before, we have a former DEA officer on our staff, Randy Slaughter, for the record, former U.S. Marine DEA advisor and retired gang task force member of the Anaheim Police Department. He is one Hmm. mean, bad mamma jamma, but he understands how to underwrite civil unrest, gang issues and Mm -hmm. drug issues. And what Randy does is go out into the community and he recruits law enforcement agents from local police precincts to live at our property. And in return for subsidized rent. These resident officers are obligated to A, park their squad cars out front of our property at night. No greater Mm. disincentive for a drug dealer than seeing a a police car parked out front. Um, They have to live in our building. They can't sublet it. They've got to make their presence known. They've got to organize and oversee community watch programs, but they are active participants in building a sense of community. And finally, in the area of healthcare, um, with the help, again, of our third vertical, our Turner Healthcare Facilities team, we recruit healthcare workers from neighborhood health centers, often ones that we may have developed. And if not, we'll go out and find great ones anyway, who in return for reduced rents, these allied healthcare workers oversee healthcare programming tailored to the community makeup, programs like health fairs, exercise classes, and flu shot drives. And while our tenants are already paying a lot in rent, none of them could afford for these additional services. Right. Leading to the very simple fact, unless our tenants have to move, they don't. So while enriching Mm. a community is interesting in theory, let me give you some encouraging metrics for our listeners. Number one, in the last six years, we've purchased 30 properties across the country comprising of over 11,000 units, okay? 17,000 residents. To date, we have enriched our communities with over 100,000, let me say it again, Mm 100,000 program participant hours of education, safety, and health programming. And to date, we've been able to drive our tenant satisfaction rates from below 30%. Today, they sit at 95%. And while enriching a community and creating a pride and rentership clearly addresses my goal to have a positive social change, let me tell you the icing on the cake. It's also driven strong financial change. With a 30% increase in lease terms, people are staying longer. And with each passing month, that average increases gets longer. We've had a 50% reduction in crime. We've had a 22% drop in economic loss, all leading to nearly an 8% growth in NOI, excluding taxes and insurance, and a forecasted 10% return net of all fees to our investors, all of this without increasing rents. This is what we call doing good by doing well. Again, this is impact investing. Earlier before we got on, you had mentioned that there's forces out there that don't like what you're doing, right? And 
and sort of, I, I guess, try to play devil's advocate, what is, what is their counter to all this? Uh, I'm trying to think of why people would not, I, not every representative in a local community, congressman, congresswoman, senators, why wouldn't they not say yes to all this and allocate capital to all this? For both of the not, perspective and private, really, both I, sides. I wish I had a great answer other than it's just ignorance. Yeah, I think um, that might be it, right? I, I think it's ignorance. I think that what people don't recognize is that throughout history, we've learned that we don't learn from history, right? But we've also learned when we have learned from history is that revolutions occur when the majority of a society live in despair, and, you know, again, as I said before, poor people don't hit, hate rich people. They want to become rich people, but they do begin to hate rich people when rich people create a society of systemic suppression. And what we're seeing in this country is a revolution in the making. Um, and that revolution is coming out of the vastness and the depth and breadth of despair of the tens and tens of millions of families who are living in survival mode, living paycheck to paycheck, who do not see any clear path to prosperity. And historically, while we have relied upon the government to provide that path of prosperity, that social safety net through education, housing, and healthcare, I think we can all see and realize that our reliance upon the governments to address those issues have failed and actually handicapped yep. our outcomes, leading to a greater disparity of outcomes. And I think that while it's too soon to really understand the, the long-term impacts of this pandemic, we all know that it has definitely impacted disproportionately our communities of color, and it is absolutely going to have a long-term impact on the healthcare, education, um, and economic outcomes on underserved communities. So it's ignorant not to want to invest in the social safety net. It's ignorant not to invest in hope because if we do not, it will lead to either a political revolution and or a physical revolution. And there is, listen, there is a subset of this country who candidly does not believe that there should be a fair and level playing field, does not believe that there should be a clear path to prosperity, doesn't necessarily understand or believe or recognize that their wealth and their privilege, a lot of it had to do with luck and it's not entitled. But the reality is, is many people do think that their wealth was entitled, that luck didn't play a role and do not do not see a need or, or a reason uh, to allocate resources for those who have not been provided the same opportunity set that they had. It's do unfortunate, but it will, it will remedy itself with time. Is there like a specific case study city that you present whether you're pitching investors or, or pitch, pitching like public servants of an ecosystem where this has just excelled maybe even beyond, you know, your wildest imagination. Is there a city or community that comes to mind where this has just been implemented flawlessly and the effects have been very broad? I think it's a work in progress. Mm -hmm. I can show you not cities, but I can show you subsets and communities mm -hmm. where we have been able to have a, a reinforcing mechanism on communities. As an impact investor, and I'll, and I'll explain what reinforcing mechanism means, um, but really, you know, as a catch-all phrase, is it means that making a dollar investment leads to $3 worth of wealth creation mm -hmm. uh, because of a change yeah. in outlook and a change in disposition. As an impact investor, listen, I'm required to make money for my investors. I report on three metrics. First and foremost, I report on how well we're doing uh, generating risk-adjusted returns. Now, the reality is over the past 20 years, most of the time I've met with new investors, I'm, I'm met with great skepticism. Uh, mm -hmm. How in the world can you do good and do well? Uh, the traditional investor believes that if you superimpose a social metric on a financial return, that will come at a sacrifice in yield. You've got to segregate profits and purpose. I am in a unique position that over the last 25 years, I've actually proven that I've done correctly. Social impact investing can actually 
drive better risk-adjusted returns than more traditional investments because it's not based on speculation. I mean, most investors in the world are speculating. Right. They're yep. buying low, hoping to sell high. They're selling high, hoping to buy low. They're betting on interest rates, cap rate compressions, whatever it might be. They're betting on the, whether or not they can create demand for a product without knowing if the demand exists. Social impact does none of that. Social impact doesn't try to create demand. Social impact is focused on existing demand mm -hmm. that is unmet. Things like education, housing, healthcare needs, where the traditional investors been the government, where mm -hmm. institutional capital misperceives the opportunity, where there's a dearth of capital, uh, and marketplaces where they require unique opportunities or unique skill sets. And if you do it right, impact investing can actually drive better risk adjusted returns because we've eliminated one of the biggest risks of investing, whether or not demand exists. So I think that's uh, we're, we're proving it out in all of our schools. On average, our schools outperform their competing school districts by over 10%. We're proving that in our housing funds. We're proving that in our healthcare funds. We are a case study. And I think the challenge is, you know, I was a keynote speaker a number of years ago at the uh, Freddie Mac conference, Freddie Mac being one of mm -hmm. the largest GSA providers of, of mortgages. And I laid out my, uh, my housing model like I just did to you and your audience. And at the end of my presentation, there was a question and answer period, and there was gentlemen, I think I spoke in front of about 3,000 would-be competitors. These were 3,000 multifamily investors. And one of the, the investors said, uh, Mr. Turner, what a, what a brilliant and innovative business model. Why in the world would you have just shared that with 3,000 competitors? Aren't you afraid of competition? Uh, to which I responded, great resolve. I'm not afraid of competition. I'm actually afraid that there's not competition. Mm, the reality yeah. is, is there's 24 million families that are rent burdened in this country with the 10,000 units that I've, I've bought and preserved, uh, there's still 23,990,000 families who don't have a landlord like me mm. rooting for their success. So I'm, I'm not afraid. You know, a great example would be the public education in New Orleans, where you're from. Yep. I mean, obviously, uh, there was a wholesale After. retooling of public After education Katrina, yep. prior to Katrina. Mm -hmm. uh, the schools were some of the worst performing public schools in the country. After Katrina, with the leadership and courage of the governor and the mayor, uh, you retooled it as a charter system. Yep. And that I believe system, the first one in the country, mm -hmm. right? To uh, have as, it, as a as a yes, as a system, yes. Yes. The first charter school was back in Minneapolis, but, but yeah, what you a have proven yeah. Yeah. is a wholesale systematic change, basically flushing uh, what happened hadn't worked and being, you know, open-minded to trying something new, the outcomes have been phenomenal with regards to public school performance in New Orleans. Yeah, no, it was, I, I remember vividly, obviously coming after the storm, it was one of the, there's be silver linings out of COVID, of course, and there'll be silver linings out of every natural disaster. But I thought that that was potentially one of them. And, and it was, uh, it was really interesting to see and find out. I was just like, I was like, wow, this has a chance to kind of really innovate an entire education system for the entire country if it works here. And then you have for sort of this case study where you could take to other communities similar to, to New Orleans can benefit, I think, from an infrastructure change of just from education, because then it goes on to everything else, right? It creates more entrepreneurs. Uh, it creates more workers in skilled areas. Like it just, it, the benefits from it are not just good grades. Right. But of it's course. more people go to college. It's more people get, get you know, jobs in, in, in certain skilled areas. So I just think it's it has the potential is so amazing. And I hope the statistics are coming back positive because that would just be uh, it would so just be you amazing. you asked the question before who wouldn't be supportive of what you're doing. Yes. And I think everyone who's listening today should ask that question. Mm -hmm. And if you know someone who's not supportive, I think you need to educate that person on the benefits 
of why using business safe force for good, mm-hmm. why investing in the social safety. And by the way, social impact investing, most people say, well, gee, we don't want to raise our taxes, right? Mm-hmm. Who wants to pay more? That's the purpose of impact investing. It's not relying upon taxes or increase of taxes. This is using business market forces to address our most pressing social challenges. And that's the beauty of what we're doing. But it's almost a rhetorical question. I mean, you know, why aren't people rooting for us? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. the answer is obvious. Self aggrandizement, self-preservation, selfish, whatever it might be. And you mentioned just briefly, you know, you think about infrastructure, let's talk about how we're failing to, to and, and I think address the need for community quality, affordable healthcare. Mm-hmm. When you look at how disproportionately COVID has impacted our communities of color, the, I think it was the state of Michigan where the percentage of the population uh, that was black, while well, only represented 12% of the population, it represented 26% of the deaths. And we mm-hmm. see how disproportionately uh, these underserved and neglected communities are uh, being affected by uh, global pandemics and economic crises. And when you look at healthcare, where our country spends 20% of its GDP on healthcare, nearly $3.6 trillion is spent on healthcare. And by the way, Grant, that's the entire GDP of Germany spent on healthcare more than any other country, what we spend per capita with terrible results. Mm-hmm. Terrible results. Our healthcare fund that we have at Turner Impact is targeting the critical and growing need for community-facing, outcome-based healthcare in underserved communities. Infrastructure that will support the rapid-growing, value-based payment model that rewards healthcare providers for preventing sickness rather than treating sickness. I mean, again, we know the problems, but why has our healthcare system failed? It's failed because we have a dysfunctional reimbursement methodology historically. We have paid our healthcare system or healthcare providers based on volume, not value. Mm-hmm. Doctors mm-hmm. only get paid when they see a patient, when they treat a patient, when they perform mm. a procedure. Therefore, we have created a sick care system yeah. rather than a healthcare system. And what ends up happening is we spend an extraordinary amount of money treating sickness that would have been much less expensive if we had just prevented sickness. Yeah. What's great is we are moving towards an outcome-based, value-based system driven by CMS, which is a center for Medicare and Medicaid services in Washington. And we now have nearly 60% of our healthcare reimbursements as capitated payments, meaning that a healthcare provider is rewarded for Hmm. coming in under a cost, is penalized for coming in over a cost. And our mission is, like in the charter school space, is let's empower the very best in class, clinically proven operators of outcome-based, value-based healthcare to expand their footprint. And to date, we've built 19 community healthcare clinics, primarily Medicare Advantage clinics and pace centers for the elderly, serving 57,000 low-income patients in historically neglected communities. And at the same time, we're on target to generate a 10% return net of all fees to investors. Again, just another example of doing good and doing well. I want to I want to end on a little bit of the future and talk about what you're optimistic about. Let's say the next five to ten years in these three phases of of housing, education, healthcare, or or just overall. What are you super optimistic about? that things will actually be different maybe the next decade or so, whether it's public policy changing, whether it's better allocation of capital from government funds into programs like this, as well as the maturation of impact investing as a sector, and you see more private capital come into uh, investments like this. Are you optimistic that these things will forge and really start to, to scale you know, your philosophy? So uh, Sam Cooke uh, wrote a great song, uh, Change is a Coming. And 
I'm very optimistic because change is a coming and it's coming in the form of the population aging out. Mm -hmm. Those that are today in charge of responsible of mm -hmm. legislation, mm -hmm. in charge of responsible for allocation of resources and investments around the world are predominantly middle to late 50 or 60 mm -hmm. white men mm -hmm. who were trained very differently, who don't have the perspective, don't have the ability. They may have the ability to sympathize with these challenges, but clearly don't have the ability to empathize. They've mm -hmm. never suffered the injustices of social determination. What I'm most optimistic about is the next generation of leaders. Their values are very different. Their goals are very, very different. So as leadership changes, as you mm -hmm. see yeah. new blood come into politics, new generations of investors grow up that are diverse, that have experienced uh, and have the wisdom to think differently as there are more and more organizations like Turner Impact Capital that are pioneers, but setting the example that doing good and doing well, creating a model that works that can be replicated. All those together, those three will collide to create great change. So I'm incredibly optimistic. The only place I'm really concerned about is that I don't necessarily believe that the environmental crisis will be solved with business safe force for good. Um, because there's so many competing uh, mm -hmm. motivations around the world as to why people are not going to go green. And I think that to address the, the environmental issue, we've got to go more global and treat it like we have done the pandemic mm -hmm. with COVID-19. Mm -hmm. And I think that's going to have to be governments coming together and allocating the proper amount of, of resources and legislation, because really that train has left the station. Using market forces to reduce our carbon footprint uh, is not going to get us there. But we need to reduce the existing carbon in the atmosphere. Reducing the, the rate of, of, uh, of acceleration uh, is not getting us there. We need to extract the carbon. We need to sequester the carbon. The technology exists, but yep. it doesn't have a, 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 a market-driven solution yet because it's not profitable to extract carbon from the atmosphere and therefore has got to be government-led uh, uh, with regards to the allocation of resources because you cannot commercialize yet a carbon sequestering. Well, thank you so much, Bobby. This has been uh, tremendous uh, for me personally, and, and I hope uh, you know for the listeners when, when they hear this. Uh, I know you're very busy, so I really appreciate you taking the time and, and educating me and educating uh, hopefully a, a ton of people out there on the philosophies that you, know, you and your team are implementing across the country. And... Uh, I just believe so much in, in a lot of what you're doing. And to me, the most important shift of our time is the allocation of capital. And if that can go into systems like this on these three pillars, I think that's when you see systematic change across the board. I'm optimistic, but I think we, we still have a long way to go. Me too. And as I said before, it really just boils down to an allocation of resources. And one of the resources is our intellectual capacity. Mm -hmm. Are mm -hmm. we going to be wise enough to recognize uh, that unless we, we focus on building and enriching that social safety net, our way of society uh, will not be sustainable. And again, social impact investing has never been more important to society, but it's also never been more rewarding as an investor. So I invite uh, you and all of your listeners to, if they want to learn more, go visit our website at uh, turnerimpact.com. Uh, and we welcome all everyone to join the movement of using business safe force for good.